0: be to God. Well, thank you, Karen. Welcome, Hope Midtown. My name's Kathy. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, such a great sort of intersection here that I'm preaching on Hannah today. I wanted to update you all on Pastor Sarah and Paul had their twins on Friday. <laughs> so yeah, so really excited about that. Luke and Judah uh, were early pretty early. <laughs> so um, they're doing fine. Uh, keep them in prayer. Sarah is doing fine. Paul is doing fine. Uh, but do keep the babies, Luke and Judah, in prayer. They are preemie, so um, they're going to have to be in the hospital for a little bit. But um, we just are rejoicing this weekend uh, from that news and wanted to share that with you. And, and you know, we're talking about Hannah, who had a son as well. So um, if you were with us last week, you know that I started a a series on suffering and we were looking at the book of Job and a little of Job's story. And so if you weren't here uh, or if you were here, I want to recap some of those learnings that we gleaned from Job's story. We highlighted four different things. The first uh, unfortunate, but reality is that suffering happens to good people. That is one thing that we talked about last week. Secondly, and I'm going to touch a little bit more on this today, is the importance uh, and how right it is for us to lament and to grieve, how important that is in, in our lives. Um, thirdly, Job taught us that even in the midst of our suffering, we can still worship God, not taking the bait from the enemy, but... but. Um, continuing to worship god even in our suffering and not blame him and that's our last thing as job taught us to not fall into the temptation of blaming god um, or sinning in our anger so those are sort of four things we looked at last week from job and today as we look at the story of hannah and her suffering there are two things i i want to do today the first is to revisit as i mentioned this idea of the importance of grieving, the importance of weeping. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, but how important that is to give us ourselves the space to lament in whatever way we need to do that. And then secondly, we're going to learn from Hannah uh, and and see what God wants to show us about what do we do when we're suffering and misunderstood? What do we do when we're suffering and really misunderstood? And we're going to see this um, pretty dramatically from Hannah's story but first, so why do I want to revisit this idea of the importance of grief and of, of, um, of lament? Well, I was thinking last week as I was preaching on Job, you know, how much I feel like um, just globally, <laughs> and maybe even more nationally, like the big C church, we don't spend a whole lot of time talking about Laments. At least in my experience, uh, we don't. It's kind of up there. I feel like suffering is kind of like up there with tithing. It's like not the the most favorite thing to talk about, right? Um, but it's a reality. And so we ought to be in the church um, actually talking about it and seeing what can we learn from the lament of others. I was thinking about... Um, uh, my husband, Alistair, some of you know him, uh, actually had lost his father at a very young age when he was in college. When Alistair was in college, and I remember him specifically telling me um, that when his dad died, there were people in his church that were saying to like him and his mom, you know, well, it's okay, he's in heaven now. And while a comment like that, you know, or other comments, maybe you've experienced might be well-intended, they don't really create the space for grieving, do they? They don't really create a space for lament, however well-intended they are. Um, last week as well, there was someone who um, approached me after I had preached on Job. And I, if you remember, I talked about how um, how it's okay to cry. Um, and this person you know, shared their, a little of their story with me when their father had passed. They were literally at the funeral, and the priest told them not to cry, and this was the first time that, like, a clergy like me had ever, like, said, like, it's okay. Like, it's okay to lament. It's okay to weep, and so I think it's really important that we, that we talk about this kind of stuff because it's a reality of our, of our lives. It's something we're going to have to deal with, and so As we look at um, some of these things that Hannah did in her grief, I want to first give you a spoiler alert, lest you think this story doesn't end well. (laughs) It ends with hope. (laughs) There is hope. I'm going to give you the spoiler alert now. Elkanah and Hannah actually have a son. His name is Samuel, which is the book we're reading out of today. Um, So before we get to that, you know, story ending, which is that hope, um, we need to see the reality of the suffering that she endured, and how she handled it, and how misunderstood she was, and how she handled that misunderstanding as well. And so you see, so Hannah, first of all, couldn't you know her situation was such that she not only could not have children at the time of the story that Karin just read for us, but to add insult to injury, <laughs> um, Panaya, who is Elkanah's. Second wife, now that's a whole other story we're not going to get into today. Um, In the Old Testament, you know, it was permissive to have multiple wives. We don't necessarily believe that today. Um, We're not going to get into that today. But in this story, I'm giving you the context um, that Peninnah had children. Hannah could not have children. Hannah didn't have children. And so to add insult to Hannah's injury of of being barren and not being able to have a son like she desperately wanted... It says that have, like, provoked her to irritation. I want to reread this, verse 6. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and would not eat. Have you ever been there before where you've been so, in such a state of grief, and weeping that you couldn't even eat. And it's not an unusual thing to be sad and depressed and to the point of not being able to eat, especially I think in Hannah's case where she has this person just constantly provoking her. So our first point, and we're gonna revisit what we talked about last week. Our first point today is that weeping is okay. Weeping is okay. And I don't know who needs to hear that today, but somebody needed to hear it last week, so I'm going to assume somebody needs to hear that today. And men, I don't want to single you out today, but I am going to tell you weeping is okay. And maybe you grew up in a household where you were taught it's weak to cry or it's not okay to cry. I want to give you permission today that it's okay to weep. Weeping is necessary. God gave us tears. Now, I'm going to tell you, I I geek out on, like, the cool ways God created our bodies. I don't know if you're like me. I, I, I kind of just like know just enough about medicine and like the human body to be dangerous. But I did do a little, a little research on this this week on tears because I was fascinated. Like, how, do we, how did we get tears? Like, what's the purpose of them? Like, why do we, you know, why do we have them? And if you go online, you can geek out on this stuff. There's lots of cool re- research being done. But one of the studies I, I came across on tears and crying was that it's actually a self-soothing behavior it's self-soothing isn't that amazing like god created us to produce tears to actually be something that's self-soothing to us not only that the research also shows that when we grieve when we weep and cry that our bodies produce two really awesome chemicals i love these chemicals endorphins and oxytocin those are the feel-good chemicals we can't just like generate those on our own but when we um, when something triggers us emotionally to the point of tears it actually that response that physical response that God created produces feel-good chemicals in our body isn't that amazing? I just, I, I just, I geek out on this kind of stuff. But so, if so, I, the, the question I pose to you today is: If that's the reality that happens when we cry, why would you not want to cry? <laughs> like I need a little—I don't know about you—I need a little more endorphins and oxytocin in my life, you know. So to to cry, why would you not want to cry when God has created tears to be self-soothing and to be something that makes us to feel better? So, weeping is not just okay, but it's helpful. It's a helpful way our bodies to respond, to help us to feel better in our sorrow. I just think that's so cool. And so just like I believe he created our bodies to respond in a helpful way, I also believe, and the second point, is that God understands our sorrow. God understands my sorrow. He understands your sorrow. He understands our sorrow, even when everybody else around us misunderstands and maybe you've been there when you've been in such a state of pain and suffering and nobody gets it or or in Hannah's case where people are still provoking you even though they know you're in pain look at Elkanah's response there are two things we're going to look at here first is this interaction with Elkanah this is Elkanah's response to Hannah's sorrow verse eight her husband Elkanah would say to her Hannah why are you weeping why don't you eat why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, in the South, we would say, bless his heart. (laughs) That's what we would say. I spent a little time in the South, so I heard this phrase a lot. Um, Ladies, do you know what I mean here? Like, bless his heart. Um, Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Poor Elkanah. I mean, we know, we know absolutely from this passage, Elkanah loves Hannah. There's no doubt about this. He loves her. He gives her a double portion of meat. We, we know this in his, his, his actions. And, and I do think he's trying to be helpful. <laughs> I, I do think he is well-intended by reminding, him that, reminding Hannah that even though she doesn't have this child she just really wants, that she still has him, right? That she still has Elkanah. And so I have to say, as I was thinking about this, I can, I can kind of relate to Hannah. Um, I, I didn't warn my husband, but I'm going to talk about him today. Uh, <laughs> but in my own marriage, and I, we've been married, it'll be 24 years next month, I've sometimes had these kind of interactions with my husband in times of sadness or, or um, just suffering, and I, I've chalked it up to the reality over these years that men and women have differences, don't we? Like, we, we, have, we have God-given differences. This is, this is a reality, and it's, it's all good stuff, and I'm not going to generalize for your situation, but I'm going to tell you in my experience, sometimes my sweet husband does not like to see me sad. He hates it. He hates seeing me sad. He loves me. He, he would give me a double portion of his steak if he could. You know, it, he loves me. I don't doubt that. But there's sometimes in my sadness and sorrow that he wants to fix it. Ladies, you know what I'm saying? Like he wants to say the right thing. He wants to fix it, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's well intended. But sometimes what I need is just presence in my sorrow. And that goes for all of us, doesn't it? Sometimes what we need in our sorrow is just presence. There's nothing that anyone can say to fix the situation. You know, Elkin is trying to fix the situation for Hannah. You've still got me. Um, That's not going to fix it. Sometimes what we both need, men and women, is is just presence with one another. And so, men, I'm going to give you a little free advice. As somebody who's been married almost 25 years, you can't fix it. You can't fix it. Sometimes we just need presence and sitting in the weeping. And that goes for all of us. We all need that. And I know that we're well-intended, aren't we? When we say things, or trying to make somebody feel better, we're well-intended, but it doesn't always land or is, um, we don't always understand exactly what the person's going through. So in those moments that um, you're sitting with someone, just know that your presence sometimes is all that's required. And what I love about this picture is that That's what God does with us. He sits with us in our suffering. He sits with us in our grief. When nobody else around us understands, your family, your roommate, your spouse, your your boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever, your coworkers, when nobody else understands what you're going through, God understands. And he gives us that presence. And sometimes he doesn't give us any other words because he's not trying to fix it. But he sits with us. He sits with us. So I want to lastly look at this last interaction, which is just crazy, um, that Hannah has with the priest Eli. Um, Talk about being misunderstood. (laughs) I'm going to reread verses 9 through 14. It says, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. And in her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of my life And no razor will ever be used on his head. And as she kept praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. And Eli thought she was drunk. And said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. I mean, as I read this, you guys, I was like, Drunk? The clergy is, is like, you know, accusing her of being drunk. I mean, Hannah is suffering. She is, you know, the, the passage says she's weeping bitterly. She's pouring out her heart to the Lord. She is doing the best thing she can do, which is come before God and lay it all out there. God, lay out her sorrow. This is the best thing we can do in our grief as well. But first, her husband tries to fix it. <laughs> And now a priest who she most assuredly respected is now accusing her of being intoxicated. I mean, talk about misunderstood, being misunderstood. are yeah. so misunderstood. And I wonder today, how would you have responded if you were Hannah in this situation? How would you have responded? I mean, look at these cumulative triggers here. She's barren. She has to deal with the devastation of not being able to have a child. She's then provoked and made fun of by another family member. Then her husband is trying to like talk her out of her sadness. Hey, it's okay. You've still got me. (laughs) And now a priest who she respects has accused her of being drunk when she is just trying to cry out to God in her suffering. Now, as I thought about this, I, can, I cannot say for certain like what I would have done in that situation if I were Hannah, but I'm thinking I probably would have lashed out. <laughs> I'm thinking I probably would have lashed out in my pain. I don't know that by that point I could have taken it. And I think sometimes that is our temptation, isn't it? Is when we are in deep times of suffering and completely misunderstood by those around us, we want to we want to feel better. We want to lash out. But not Hannah. Hannah doesn't do that. And I really believe that she knew, regardless of how much you know, humans around her would misunderstand her, no matter how much her husband misunderstood her, this priest who she respected, no matter how much she was misunderstood by people, that God understood her well that God knew her pain, that God could enter in. And so she does not respond by lashing out at all. Check this out, verse 15. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. And Eli answers, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. Now, it's interesting to me, the name Hannah actually means grace or favor. And I think if you've heard that before, and I've, I've certainly heard that, that preached about before, you know, how, how God, you know, Hannah's name is, you know, representative of the grace and favor that God shows on her by giving her a son. But friends, check this out. Before that even happens, Hannah shows grace to others who misunderstood her. Hannah, in the midst of her pain, shows grace and patience to Eli. She explains to him, not out of, you know, anger or yelling. I mean, I probably would have yelled. Let's, let's be real here. I probably would have like yeah, I'm not drunk. You know, she is graceful. She explains to him. She even addresses him as my Lord, which was a sign of respect. She didn't have to do that, but she explains to him how how much suffering she is in. She opens up to him and is graceful in her response that she had not been drinking, but that she was crying out to God. And so, you see, God pours out this grace on Hannah Right? In our spoiler alert, she has Samuel. But before that even happens, she shows grace and favor to those who misunderstood her. And so, my question for us today is how do we react when we're misunderstood and we're suffering? How do we respond to others when we're in pain and people don't get it? Is it to show them grace? Is it to show them patience? Or do we take out our pain on that person? Which I think is more often than not the temptation. Parker Palmer is an author I love. Um, wrote this and on the brink of everything grace gravity, and getting old. And I think it so sums up this point of what happens when what we do with our pain. He says this heartbreak comes with the territory called being human. That's that suffering happens to all of us thing. When love and trust fail us, when what we once brought us meaning goes dry, when a dream drifts out of reach, when a devastating disease strikes, or when someone precious to us dies, our hearts break and we suffer. What can we do with our pain? How might we hold it and work with it? How do we turn the power of suffering toward new life? And hear this, friends. The way we answer these questions is critical because violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. Say that again. Violence is what happens when we don't know what else to do with our suffering. And I believe it was in the midst of Hannah's suffering and her gracious response, how she responded to Eli is how she turned that thing into new life. She treated him with grace. She didn't take out her pain on him. And when she opens up to him honestly about her suffering, look, look at what happens here. Eli joins her in prayer. Verse 17, Eli answers, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked Think about it. If she had not been honest and told him what she was going through and the pain she was suffering, he would not have probably known and joined in this intercession. And it's shortly thereafter that he intercedes and and asks God to grant her, her what she desires that God gives her Samuel. And guess what? Guess what Samuel means? God has heard. Samuel means God has heard. This is amazing to me. But I really think we've got to look at this this reality. That God does care. As present as he is with us in our suffering, and as much as he is is our comforter and, and understands us, he also cares about what we do with that pain. And Hannah shows us here how to gracefully respond. And sometimes it's just opening up and being honest. And I know that's hard. Like us New Yorkers, we're like, we're cool. We got it all together, right? We're walking around. Everyone's walking around with pain. Everyone's walking around with some kind of pain. But she's honest with him. So these two things that to bring this home, just this reminder that we learned from Job, And then we learned from Hannah today that weeping is okay. Weeping is a necessary part of grief. And as I said last week, and I'm going to say it again, there is no time limit on grief. Don't let anybody tell you that, that there's a time limit on your grief. God's going, okay, it's been um, three weeks now, or two months, or one year, or five years. God is not doing that. He is with you in your grief. And there's no time limit on it. And then secondly, this idea that God understands our sorrow. Even when everyone around us doesn't get it. Or they misunderstand. God understands it. And he not only understands our sorrow, but we also see at the end of the story, what? He is the God who hears. He is the God who hears. He brings Samuel in here. He hears us. And our sorrow and our cries, he hears each one of them. I mentioned to you all last week, if you were here, that there are times when I am in my deepest suffering, weeping bitterly, that God has met me in profound ways that he he wouldn't have necessarily had I been on the high mountaintops. Now, that does not mean I want the suffering. I'm going to be real. I don't want the suffering, but I do want his presence. And there have been times when I've allowed him in that he has been with me in in profound ways. And I believe he wants that for you too. I really do. And the reason he's able to do that, the reason Jesus is able to sit with us in this, is he was a man who knew suffering, wasn't he? He knew greater suffering than you or I sitting here could ever imagine. He understood what it was like to be misunderstood all the way up to that cross. Totally misunderstood to the point of death on a cross. And so when we have Jesus in our lives, when we have him in our heart, we carry him around with us, he lives inside of us. And the Bible says he comforts us. We also have a Holy Spirit who comforts us as well. But Jesus knows our suffering. He experienced it. And so I want to leave us with 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 as an encouragement. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ... So also, our comfort abounds through Christ. And so friends, this is the hope that we have. And and in just a moment, I want to invite our worship team to come up. And um, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And as I thought about this, you know, how this message kind of intersects with this sacrament that we're going to take together today. And as you came in, you should have received one of these. If you didn't, just raise your hand and we'll have somebody come around and bring you one. Um, But as we think about Christ's suffering, you know, we we, we take the the elements as a remembrance of his broken body for us, the, the blood he poured out for us. I want us to remember that the story didn't end there, did it? There was new life that was birthed out of his suffering. And through his suffering, death on a cross, and resurrection, we are restored to God who created us. So there is so much life, new life, out of that pain, just like Hannah experienced in the birth of her son Samuel. And so I want to invite us today as we we take communion, and I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're sitting here in a place of, of deep suffering, and you might be. And maybe this is just a, a time for you to remember that Christ knows. He knows deep suffering. And so he wants to be with you. He wants to enter that pain with you. And maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you need to be reminded through taking this these elements that, that there's hope, that there is new life that is going to be Birthed out of the suffering, that we serve a Savior who didn't stay on a cross but miraculously resurrected to bring us all new life. And maybe that's what you need to be reminded of is that there's going to be new life at the end of the season of suffering. And so I want to invite us now, you can go ahead and take your... Uh, your cup and get your wafer ready. It was on the night of Jesus' betrayal. He was having a last dinner with his disciples, and they had no idea what kind of suffering he was going to go through. They had no idea. And so they misunderstood a lot of what he said that night when he told them what the bread and the cup were for. And so I just want to remind us that this is, we, we serve Christ and we do this in remembrance of him. And so on that night when he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks for it before he gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And so we eat together. and he gave thanks for it before he gave it to his disciples. And this is what he said. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which was poured out for the forgiveness of sins for all. So take and drink. Let's take it together. thank you for thank you for your amazing love that you poured out on us through Jesus who entered into the deepest suffering, suffering many of us can't even imagine but maybe some of us are going through that same kind of suffering thank you, God, that we can remember what Jesus not only did for us at the cross, but, Lord, the new life that came out of that suffering and pain. And so, Father, may you continue to encourage us as as we respond in worship here in a moment, Lord, and as we leave this place, God, that you are present with us in our suffering. Because Jesus knows love us through it. And you want to remind us that there is hope at the end of it. So God, we thank you. We thank you for pouring out your son as a drink offering for us. And we thank you that there is new life and there is hope because we have a savior who died and was resurrected just for us. And we pray these things in his name respond and worship. I invite you to stand if you're able.